Last week we started this series on waiting for the arrival. And we looked at the perfect plan of redemption, God's perfect providential timing and all of those things. And so now we really park over the next few weeks and look at Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2, the, the whole nativity story from Matthew's perspective. And this morning we're just going to be looking at the genealogy of Jesus. And as you hear and read and look at all of that, you, you might get lost or overwhelmed with all of these lists of names. And uh, if, if we're not careful, we could just kind of zone out or say, what is the point? Well, why is all this here? Like, well, I'm not feeling enriched by any of this. And so hopefully, as a result of our time together, we'll, we will feel enriched, encouraged, as Matthew writes with some uh, very clear certainties that he wants us to look at. And one of the things that I want us to consider this morning and it's our sermon title is this, A Glimpse of Grace, or Glimpses of Grace. We're basically going to be looking at a, a broken but beautiful family tree. A broken but beautiful family tree from uh, Matthew's perspective as we unpack all of this. And what we discover as we unpack all of this is it's messy. And yet through it all, we're going to see God's grace taking broken people and molding them, crafting them into something beautiful and using them. And what looks as a messed up mess of things, God is actually crafting something beautiful together, part of his master work and making us masterpieces as well. And so one of the things hopefully that we see today is a little bit further of who God is and what he does. The big idea for this morning is this. God's grace is revealed in the genealogy of Jesus. So God's grace is revealed in the genealogy of Jesus, and it is extended in the gospel of Jesus. So this whole concept of God's grace isn't a new thing, but it's actually who God is and what he's been all about all throughout. And so hopefully we can see that um, better today. Having said that, let's just ask the Lord to guide our time. Lord, thank you for this special time where we gather with your people, uh, gather to sing praises, to pray to you, and to hear your word proclaimed. And Lord, as we look in your word, uh, I pray that it would be rich and robust to us. I pray that we would um, receive it. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our midst, that we would be better off as a result of being together, being under your word. And Lord, not only that, but we would walk out of here transformed and maybe rejoicing in a way that we hadn't been when we walked in here. And so just make this a sweet time together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So over the past number of years, you've probably seen the huge rise of some of these um, genealogy businesses that say, hey, if you want to learn about your family tree, your history, all this stuff, we'll send you this packet, you give us the DNA swab, and then we'll, we'll a few weeks later, shoot out what the results are. Uh, maybe you've even done that. Um, if you are, you're not alone. Actually, 23 plus million people have submitted their DNA to find out a little bit more about their history. And usually what they find out as the da database has grown and grown and grown, th they find out a little bit more than they had bargained for, right? Oh, I actually have some family roots in this country or this country, or I actually have some, some family roots that I didn't even, I, there are some branches on this family tree that I didn't even know of, right? And uh, more recently as this uh, data pool has been growing and growing and growing. Now you see the criminal justice world looking to tap into that because 
what they're finding through this mega pool is they can either uh, confirm or um, eliminate certain suspects in criminal cases. Uh, they are not connected to this family tree based on this, this, and this, or they are. And um, so this whole thought, co thought concept of genealogy isn't, I mean, it's somewhat new as to the technology, but God has always been keeping track of genealogy. I mean, you, you get into some of those early books and you see that. And the Jews were meticulous for that. And so it ought not come as a, as a surprise when we see the opening here of Matthew as he writes some of these things. But here's what we discover, not only here, but in a lot of those DNA reports, is there's a lot of things that we didn't know, that we didn't foresee coming. And so as some people get the results back of those, there's sometimes a, a good surprise. And then for others, there's like the shocking surprise. As we just revealed this, this, and this, there were some family secrets that were maybe hidden. Well, here's what God doesn't do. He doesn't look to hide the, the secret sins of the past. He actually looks to bring them out into the light um, because it's a means for him to also show his goodness, his grace, his forgiveness, and just who God is is, is revealed in all of these things. And so um, as we're going to be pressing into grace this morning and God's grace, I want us to be reminded, and I know most of you know, already know this, but I just want to give a simple basic definition for us to be mindful of. When we think of God's grace, you could simply say God's unearned and undeserved favor. God's unearned and undeserved favor. That is God pouring out his goodness upon me, upon you, not because we deserve it, not because we earned it, it's just because of who God is. And God's grace is granted to us because we so desperately need it and it is something that we can never earn. And so what we're going to see here in the Old and New Testament is God's grace just being outpoured time after time after time again. If you remember from last week, we already talked about how this was just a hard time of living. By this time, Rome had been oppressing the people, particularly the Jews, for over 60 years. And one of the ways in which they uh, really oppressed the people we, we talked about many of them last week, but one of the big ones was just taxation. Taxes, 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 to the point of just squeezing them dry, where they're just living in complete poverty. And anytime you'd exit and enter in a town, you'd have to pass by these tax booths. And if you remember from a few weeks ago when we looked at Matthew 2, we saw the detestable acts of Levi and how people just despised Levi. And yet God... Jesus would walk past him, say, follow me. They would enter into this fellowship, this relationship. Jesus would show grace to him. He would be forgiven. And that Levi, as many of you know, is actually Matthew. So it ought not surprise us, a man that has experienced much grace as he pens the, the letter of the Gospel of Matthew is going to also highlight the grace of God all throughout the book of Matthew. And we're even going to see that just in genealogy, we might just be thinking, oh, it's just names, just names. No, 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 it's so much more than names. And so Levi, or Matthew, who has experienced this gift of grace, is going to show the grace of God in the Old Testament leading into the New Testament. You know, so interesting, Old Testament prophecies are oftentimes pointing to this coming king, this great king. When will he come? You know, Genesis chapter 3, he's going to crush Satan's head. 
They're going to bring back dominion and establish this kingdom. And it's all going to work out. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, Nathan, he's speaking the word of the, of the Lord to David. And he says this. When your time comes, that is David who's reigning and ruling, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you and your descendant who will come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish his, the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. And yet David goes on. He has his son Solomon who takes the throne. And if you know anything about the, the, the kingdoms there, it wouldn't be long before the kingdom is divided and falls and would seem like it's utterly destroyed, as if there is no hope, as if what God said here isn't going to come to pass. Well, I thought you were going to establish this kingdom that will live forever, because this isn't looking so good right now. And in the time that Matthew writes this, they, they're, they're still looking, Lord, are you going to send a king? Are you going to re really establish a kingdom that will live forever? Because we've been in 400 plus years of silence and darkness, and it doesn't seem like there's any remnants whatsoever of David's line continuing. It doesn't seem like there's any royalty. The only thing we see is the oppression of Rome. How can this be? And yet, time and time again, you can look at a number of psalms that talk about the king of glory coming, the Lord of hosts, um, numerous prophecies. We, we've talked about some of those. But it, here's what we understand in the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1, verses 10 and 11. He kind of talks about the writers of these things did not fully comprehend the nature of the one who would come. They didn't fully see and understand looking for this Messiah. They wrote about some of these things, but they hadn't connected all the dots. And so it's not until the Gospels that we kind of see the full identity and nature of the predicted king as presented and explained in the Gospels. And so Matthew chapter 1 explains this genealogy where it goes through the birth of Christ. But, but looking back, he's looking to connect the dots, if you will. Because Matthew, a Jew, is oftentimes writing from this Jewish perspective to his Jewish friends and family. Those that had missed the mark. Those that had not caught all of these things. And so he wants to really wrap all of these things in this pretty package so that the, the, Jewish, the Jewish individual would be able to look back and see, oh yes, oh yes, oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. And so this is not just a list of names. It's so much more than that. You know, throughout the book of Matthew, he's going to just not only talk about the Jesus, the Messiah King, but he's going he's gonna to look to reveal him. And then he's going to look to, to show this revealed king who is the rejected king, but he's also this king that will return. And this is all woven throughout the book of Matthew. But you know what? Um, Jesus himself is going to proclaim this himself many times. I mean, we see in this story how the, the royal line is threatened, right? By the, and the king feels like, oh no, we got to wipe out all of, all of the babies. We're getting ahead of ourselves here. But he, he, he had heard this, this prophecy of a coming king, not on my watch. There's these royal gifts in the nativity, right? Where the, 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 the magi come and they bring these royal gifts to, to the young child Jesus. 
And then John the Baptist, when he burst on the scene, he talks about this coming king who's looking to establish his kingdom. And then as Jesus stands before Pilate, John chapter 18, it says this, You are a king, Pilate asked. You say that I am a king, Jesus replied. And listen to what Jesus says. I was born for this, and I came into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus does not reject the thought of him being a king. He knows who he is, and he knows why he came, to establish this king pointed to back in the Old Testament. And so Jesus proclaims this, but you can't just say, well, I'm of this royal line. There's going to be say, prove it. What, what are your credentials? Who, who's your daddy and who's your granddaddy and who's your granddaddy's granddaddy and granddaddy? And so Matthew is going to seek to prove this. And so Matthew's genealogy presents a descending line from Abraham through David, through Joseph, to Jesus, who is called the Christ. And he intends to validate the Jesus royal claim by showing his legal descent from David through Joseph. I know this is a lot. Bear with me who was Jesus' legal father, though not his natural father, but we also see that Jesus was a blood descendant of David through Mary and a legal descendant through Joseph. You say, you just lost me in a lot of information there. Here's, the summary is this. Matthew is tying it all together. He has a right to the throne and all of the things predicted and spoken of in the Old Testament are gonna be linked together right here. And so he's, he's making this case. You, Jews of old, you missed it, you missed it, but I'm going to outline it, and I'm going to go into some detail, and you want to dig it up for yourself, because they didn't have the DNA test that we do today, but they had meticulous records, and they'd be looking back on all of these things. And so when it says in Matthew chapter 1, this book, it's not talking about the whole book of the gospel, it's talking about the, the record or account them keeping track of all of these things. He could prove all of these things. And when it talks about the genealogy, it's really the, the genesis, the beginning, or the origins of Jesus' genealogy tree. That, that's what he's talking about here. And so when he says, right in the verse 1, Jesus, he's talking about Jehovah, Yahweh, Yahweh saves. And then he says Christ. He gives both titles here. That is the Messiah, the anointed one. He was, wants to be very clear of who he's talking about and who he's speaking of. But he's not just looking to show this royal line. It's not intended to be a deep dive into each person. Rather, it's to show individuals and point to the royalty of Christ, yes. But it's more than names on a page. It's actually pictures of grace. You see, Jesus was sent by God through his grace to be the king of grace. That's who Jesus is. And his royal credentials reflect this royal grace. All throughout the end, sisters, is going to point to this. And so this morning, we're going to look at four glimpses of grace. The first glimpse I want us to see is this. One lady. One lady in particular here, and it's young Mary. You see, sometimes we want to elevate Mary to a place that the Bible does not elevate Mary. Um, the Bible says that there is no righteous, no, not one. So Mary falls within that category. She is no savior. In fact, she would proclaim this because when she is made aware that she is actually going to be carrying the savior, she says this in Luke 1.38. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my savior because he has looked 
with me on favor on the humble condition of his servant. She rejoices in God, her Savior. She was never meant to be a Savior. She just received God's grace. And here's what we learn about Mary. Mary was fearful when the angels came. Jesus was never fearful of the angels. He actually left angels, made himself lower than the angels, but he always knew who the angels were. He was never fearful of them. He, he, he never trembled in fear, fear of these things. Mary did. Mary, when, when hearing all of this news, talks about her pondering these things in her heart, there is anxiety within her. The, the fear of the unknown. What's going to happen? What's going to take place? Jesus always knew what was going to take place. Mary did not. You know, Mary, although a humble, faithful servant of the Lord, wants to seek and serve the Lord, goes to the temple, she leaves Jesus in the temple. She loses the Messiah for three days. I mean, hello, she cannot possibly be the Messiah. She lost the Messiah, like that's not good. We see one of Jesus' first miracles. Mary's there, she's, I don't know exactly what her role is, but they're running out of wine. What does Mary do? Does Mary perform a miracle? Mary goes to Jesus, Jesus, help me out, I need help. She was insufficient to actually help in that thing. So what does Mary do? She goes to Jesus, knowing who Jesus is, the Messiah who can work miracles if he so sees fit. And what does Jesus do? Mom, I'll, t I'll take care of you. I'll, I'll cover you for today. And that's exactly what happens. We see Jesus on the cross when Mary is there. Jesus is on the cross dying for the sins of man. Jesus is the one who's going to be the Messiah. And he looks down to Mary, and he looks down to John who's there, and he says to John, John, behold my mother. What was he saying? Hey, take care of her. She needs someone to take care of her. John, will you do that? Once again, though, when we think of Mary, she was never a giver of grace. When it says favored one in Luke chapter 1, one endued with grace. That is, she received the special grace of God that was bestowed upon her. She's never distributing grace. Jesus never says that Mary can distribute grace. Every time Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, does he say pray to Mary? No, he says pray to the heavenly Father. The, the greatest, most, uh, uh, the, the author of the most New Testament, the Apostle Paul, never once mentions Mary. Hmm. What does he do? He magnifies Christ because he realized the only conduit of grace, grace from God the Father, is going to come through Jesus and no one else. I wish I could just distribute God's grace to you. I can't. God's grace is only distributed through Jesus. And Mary received this. Oh, she was faithful. She loved the Lord. She sought to be a humble servant of the Lord. And the Lord used her in a great and magnificent, awesome way. Praise God for Mary. But we ought not praise Mary because she was just a receiver of grace that was bestowed upon her. Okay, I want us to move on. We're going to move on from Mary. And we're going to look at... Number two. 
here's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at two fallible men. We're going to look at the son of David and the son of Abraham. Both sinners. Both receive God's grace. I mean, if you think about it, right? I mean, if I, if I say, hey, name your top five Old Testament Bible characters. Somewhere along the line, someone's going to say Abraham. And someone's going to say David. Now, Abraham, a great man of faith. David, a great man of faith. And yet, the Bible highlights some pretty sinful characteristics about them. David, committing adultery, having a child out of wedlock, and then sending her husband to the front line to be killed. He wasn't able to build the temple because of some of the violence within his background. So although David was this awesome, amazing man on one hand who sought to be a man after God's own heart, he also struggled. And we see some of the Psalms where he talks about his deep, dark struggles. But here's what we see about David, just like Mary. He sought to be a humble man. When confronted with his sin, he would repent of that sin, restored, sought forgiveness, and God would go on by his grace to still use David. When we think of Abraham, there's some flannel graph stories that we tell to little kids, and then there's some flannel graph stories that we don't exactly share with little kids of early days of lying about his wife two different times. Oh, she's not my wife, she's my sister. You want her as a wife? Cool. What is going on? God said to give me a child. He's not giving me a child. Well, maybe we, maybe we can figure that out. What? What is going on? And yet, Abraham would be forgiven of those things and used by God. God would still pour out his grace and use David and use Abraham, even though they had some pretty big failures. God's grace is written upon them. And the family tree expands, and it's getting messy as we look at all of these things. But the family tree expands out, and yet God's grace is extended out as well. And so, uh, obviously, Abraham goes on to have a son, Isaac, who is going to be this type, this sacrificial savior and Isaac's sons are going to have Jacob later named Israel and then Jacob's sons Judah and his brothers who would become the head of the tribes of Israel and these men would be unfaithful and yet God would be faithful and have grace and use them and yet beyond David's son Solomon who was wise in much regards was also foolish he had the the wisdom of God and yet took upon many wives had many children and many forms of dysfunction and yet God's grace is still going to use him I want us to move on to three different time periods so we've seen this one lady we've seen these two men but I want us to consider these three 14 generations that we read all those names about the first one is Abraham to David. If you're doing an Old Testament survey in your mind, you're, you're going through the patriarchs, you're going through the life of Moses, jo- Joshua, Judges, all of these things. And here's what you see. You see times of wandering, 
times of roaming, times of enslavement. There's going to be times of deliverance, times of making covenants, times of breaking covenants. And you're going to see the sinful cycle, that doing which was right in their own eyes, repenting and being restored and then repeating, repeating, repeating. And what are you seeing repeated? The sinfulness of man and yet the grace of God to forgive and restore. Although man would be unfaithful, God would be faithful. He made a promise and he's going to draw up this, this family line. He has a plan. God's grace is, is woven into all of these things through all the highs and lows. But not only in that genealogy do we see Abraham to David, but then we go from David to the time of exile. You see, God was going to reign and be their king, but Israel, they looked around and they said, we want our own king. And so they get king, they get King Saul, and then David's going to come to the scene. But here's what we see. Throughout all of those years, throughout the rise and fall of those kings, there's really four that are okay kings. But all the others are pretty wicked, pretty bad. And so while there would be some victories, there's going to be many defeats along the way. While they're going to have some conquests, they're also going to find themselves in exile, meeting destruction of Jerusalem and its temple. And so while there would be godliness, there's also a great time of godlessness. But then we get from David to exile to the time of exile to the time of the Messiah. And it's like with each generation, things seem to be getting, going from bad to worse. Like if you were to live that long, or, or just maybe you're living in that time of exile and looking back on all that, you'd be like, you know what? It, it looked like in the time of Abraham that there, there was this family tree that was flourishing and that God would be doing this but like it it looks like that whole family tree has been cut down and wiped out I don't think this Messiah is really going to come but what we're going to see once again is God's grace on display and so even during this time of spiritual darkness of huge amounts of pagan worship and idolatry God hasn't forgotten his promise and even in the midst of all of these people running and doing their, their own thing, living in darkness, God and his grace is going to continue to work his plan, regardless of all of those things. We're going to now pivot to look at four unlikely individuals. We've seen the one lady, we've seen the two men, we've seen these three different time periods, but I want us to kind of close out by kind of just thinking and considering four unlikely individuals. And here's what we're going to find. You know, when it comes to genealogy, typically, more times than not, the women aren't really highlighted. It's just the names of the men passed down. But as Matthew highlights the genealogy, there are four women that he's going to pluck out and put their names in there. Why would he do this? Because they're great candidates? Because they are just perfect citizens with no problems? Because they just exude godliness in every way, shape, or form? Well, 
if you know or study your Bible well, that's not really what we discover of these women. We're going to find that these are really unlikely individuals that I don't know that I'd be bragging about them in my family tree. These would be ones like I'd, I'd want to like maybe do a little highlighter or like a little white out or delete them from the family tree or give them a really small branch that no one really sees. And here in the Bible, it's right out there. Tamar, she's a Gentile. She's not part of this, the nation of Israel. She's not part of the children of God. She's a Canaanite, daughter-in-law of Judah. And if you were to read Genesis 38, um, it's scandalous. I can't even give you the PG-13 version um, in depth right now, but listen, I would encourage you, read Genesis 38. And you'll just read that story and say, that's messed up. Like, really, 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 really bad, immoral relationships with family. I think that's, that's, that's a nice way of saying it. Sleeping with family member. Whoa, what's going on here? And she's a part of this family tree? Yeah. And God's actually going to grow that family tree from great wickedness. God will still bring forth something righteous, the Messiah. We're going to go from Tamar to Rahab, another Gentile woman, another outsider. Once again, the, the PG-13 version, she made a career as being a prostitute. That's how she made her living off sexual favors. Whoa! We're talking about Jesus the Messiah? He's part of this tree? Yeah, and, and God even decides to put it in here. Because if you know this story, when in Jericho she's confronted, and then she's going to, in the midst of these Israel spies that come in, she's going to lie to protect. When the, Jew, when the, the, the king's messenger comes to her, no, I haven't seen, she, she lies to protect them. God finds favor, God, God decides to show favor upon her. The whole city is destroyed. Do you know who is saved? Rahab is destroyed out of that. Even though she was so wicked, even though she did all, yeah. You see, that's who God is. God is one to be long-suffering and longs to forgive and show grace and mercy. She needed grace and mercy, and God shows it to her. And Rahab would be delivered while everyone else is destroyed and brought into the messianic family line. She would be the mother of godly Boaz. You mean Boaz, when I read the story of Ruth, who is this great and godly man? Yeah, comes from Boaz. Boaz comes from Rahab. So if I'm doing my math correct, I'm looking at this family tree. She's going to be the, this wicked woman? She's going to be the... The great-grandmother of David? Yeah, you got that right. She's going to be the great-grandmother of David. Whoa. But it, it, gets, it gets better. Then you look at Ruth. Once again, Ruth, she's an outsider. She's, she's a Gentile as well. She's going to eventually marry Boaz. She's got this pagan background that she could have gone back to worship the, the pagan gods of, of her family line and says, you know what, I want to follow your God. And God says, okay, 
and he pours out grace upon her. And she will then be the grandmother of King David. God's grace would be extended to her and work in her life. But then we come to just one more lady that's mentioned here. Her name actually isn't even mentioned. It's just wife of Uriah, who we know as Bathsheba. Just think about Bathsheba. She becomes a widower after it's found out that she's with child out of wedlock, committing adultery with King David. Gives birth, loses a child, is brokenhearted over this. And then God, in his grace, would grant her another child who would be Solomon, who would then rule and reign after David. None of these women are worthy, in my eyes and your eyes, but God says, oh, you know what? (laughs) I'm the God of grace. And regardless of their background, and their baggage, regardless of their sin, regardless of their struggle, I love them. I'm just going to pour out grace upon them. I'm going to use them. And they'll be used as part of this big, messy genealogy of Jesus. Like, we look at them and be like, that's a messed up family. And God says, yeah, I know. That's how I work. My, my grace is sufficient. My grace is greater than all their sins and all their struggles. It's who I am. You say, why, why, does, why does Matthew highlight all of these things? I mean, keep in mind the original audience, right? The original audience would have been aware of some of Isaiah's prophecy, one of which prophesying the Messiah, the genealogy line of David. And Isaiah 11, verse 10 says this. On that day, the root of Jesse, now who is Jesse? The root of Jesse, that's, David would be the, the son of Jesse, right? So his father will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will look to him for guidance and his resting place will be glorious. You know, if you go out and pull some weeds, you just pull them, but you don't get them up by the roots. I mean, you know what happens a day, two days, four days later, right? It it pops back up. Many may have been thinking, this tree is history, it's gone. However, the roots were deep. God had planted some deep roots. And where it looked like there was no more tree of life that was going to to appear, the root of Jesse through David and beyond is going to burst on the scene, and it's going to be Jesus. He burst on the scene, and he later on goes on to say, I am the the, the tree of life, I, I am the vine, and I call you to be my branches. He's putting all of these things together that, that they had not seen, that they had not understood. And so after all this time, there's this fallen kingdom. All hope is lost. The family tree had fallen. Too, too much to be broken, right? And no, 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 no. Jesus is going to shoot forth and bring forth life where it looked like there was no life. In Romans chapter 15 and Acts chapter 13. Paul actually speaks about this, confirming this prophecy of Isaiah was actually fulfilled in Jesus and is still being fulfilled as he comes to further uh, establish his kingdom. He came the first time, but he's coming again, and they're, they're pointing to all of these things. 
You know what's great, though? Romans 11 talks about how some of those branches in the Old Testament were removed. Those that rejected and did not follow God, they were removed. But in the New Testament, as we turn the pages, through those who would look to Jesus for life, they would be grafted in. They would be grafted into this family tree, and not just grafted in like some little branch. They would be grafted in and then given the Holy Spirit to live within to then allow them to bear forth fruit, to be used of God and for God to work mightily within their way. Not by their own doing, but once again, by the grace of God. It's God from Old Testament to, to New Testament using people, but not by their own strength, but by his grace. If you remember, the big idea is this. God's grace is revealed in the genealogy of Jesus, and it is extended in the gospel of Jesus. So as we conclude, I want you to think about this. Why does Matthew highlight all of these individuals? Well, why does he do that? Well, really, if you think about it, as you dissect all those names, all those time periods, because it highlights God's grace. You say, why is this good for me? How is this helpful for me? Today, you might be out there thinking, you don't fully understand, you don't fully comprehend the messiness of my family, of my life. You don't know me, you don't know my problems, you don't know my past, you don't know my present situation, and while that is all true, here's what I do know based on just our brief overview today. Regardless of age, think of young Mary. Regardless of male or female, regardless of good family or not so good family, regardless of an ever-changing culture of times of people running from the Lord, all these things, regardless of sin and struggles, God's grace is greater. So when you're in the midst of life and it's a mess, we can rejoice in God's grace. Some of these people, maybe some, some people looked at those four ladies and said, they are too far gone. There is no good in them. Can God really do anything? And yes, and God works. And God shows up. And so in your life, in the, in the life of your friends, in the life of your family, do not give up hope of saying, Lord, I need your grace to do what I cannot. I need you to do a breakthrough where I cannot break through. That's what I need of you, Lord. And so in the midst of your mess, the gospel of Christ meets our needs. Christ grants us what we need and when we need it, grace. Our lives or the lives of others may be messy. They, they may be really, really messed up. And through God's grace, he makes us his masterpiece. This is Ephesians chapter 2. Through the gospel of Christ, according to the grace of God, anyone can be grafted in. By faith, we repent and believe and become genuine followers. And here's the really good news. The same grace that saves us also sustains and strengthens us. So he, he just doesn't say, well, yeah, I grafted you into my tree. You're in. No, I, I want you to flourish. I want to produce fruits within you. I want you to experience love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, uh, self-control. I, I want to give you all of these things. I want to impart them to you. So he gives us what we need when we need it. May we always be mindful of this, even in the messiness of life. May we preach this gospel message to ourselves and others we encounter. 
Listen to this as we close. If God had called sinners by grace into this genealogy of Jesus, then it shouldn't surprise us that God would send his son to graft us into his family tree by grace through faith in the gospel of Jesus. When we stop to think about it, it shouldn't surprise us that the grace of God that is saturated all throughout this Old Testament genealogy is then transferred over to us in the gospel of Jesus. That's really good news for me and for you. And yet there's many people that are unaware of this good news. And so God has called us to take this good news. We've received this wonderful gift. And so at Christmas time, rather than getting caught up in all the great gift giving, which I'm not opposed to giving of gifts, but why not tell others about this great gift of salvation that Christ offers? What a wonderful thing God in his grace has bestowed upon us. Let's pray.